Did you know that a graphic designer created the first over-the-counter pregnancy test? How did giving birth become medicalized? What does culturally appropriate care look like? Welcome to Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Koo. On this show, we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guests are Michelle Miller-Fisher and Amber Winnick. This is part two of Designing Motherhood. Michelle has worked as an educator, curator, and historian in universities and museums, including the Museum of Modern Art, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the Guggenheim, and the MFA Boston, where she is currently the Warnick Curator of Contemporary Decorative Arts. Her work focuses on the intersections of people, power, design, and craft. She has co-authored many books, essays, and exhibitions, including Design and Violence and Items as Fashion Modern. Amber Winnick is a mother and design historian. She holds an MA in Design History, Decorative Arts, and Material Culture from the Bard Graduate Center, and a BA in Child Development and Anthropology from Sarah Lawrence College. She has received two Fulbrights and has lived and researched maternal and child-related designs, policies, and practices around the world. She has expertise in the design systems, environments, and objects that empower and disempower us, particularly around birth, family leave, caregiving, schools, and early childhood. If you haven't done so, sign up for the Design Lab newsletter. Each week, you find some links to articles and other cool stuff. You can find the newsletter at bit.ly forward slash design lab newsletter or follow us on Twitter at design lab pod on top of the account. You find a link to the newsletter. I say this every week, but it really helps us out a lot. If you can go on Apple podcast and Spotify and give us five stars. And there's also an option to leave a comment on Apple podcasts as well. Now, here's my conversation with Michelle Fisher and Amber Winnick. Michelle and Amber, welcome to Design Lab. Thank you for having us, Bon. Thank you so much. I love, love your book, Designing Motherhood. And reading the book and actually visiting your exhibit at the Mütter Museum here in Philadelphia, where I'm based, I had this revelation. I was thinking, why hasn't this been done yet? It just seems so obvious that the experience of motherhood, the services related around motherhood, the products are all designed and has impacted millions, probably hundreds of millions of people on the planet. Why hasn't this been done before? That is the question that, I mean, we do you want the 60 second answer, the two minute answer, or like the lifetime answer? Because there, <laughs> there are varying lengths of answer and here. Any but... flavor that you feel like <laughs> describing would be cool. I mean, I think we often say it's because people who make decisions in many worlds, but certainly in the worlds in which Amber and I found ourselves when we met were design historians. We've worked in and around museums, teaching, publishing for almost 20 years now. And many of the people, although it's changing gradually, but, but not really in many ways, many of the people who make decisions about what to green light in terms of cultural content 
have never come within 10 feet of a lactating person. These are not the experiences that undergird their lives. These are not decisions that they have to make about their own bodies or have made for them by other entities. And so it has not been on their radar, which you know is the absolute argument for why we should have a more diverse set of voices at the table in terms of decision-making in cultural institutions, but just in every single walk of life. Yeah. And I mean, that was exactly how we went into the project, just being like, well, this is obvious. Everyone is going to love this because, you know, why hasn't it been done? It was just staring us in the face. And, you know, we were rubbing our hands with glee thinking, my God, this is going to be so incredible. And the opportunities of conversations that we'll be able to have will just be so rich. But we had a lot of doors shut in our faces when we proposed the idea, which is part of the story here. Okay. Well, yeah, I had a question of like, how did you actually meet in my research? I think you met at a restaurant in Brooklyn. Is that right? We actually had a meeting before that. So Amber came to my house. I had a baby shower for a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, Jessica. Amber turned up with a really nice upside down cake. We said hello for a little while, but it was one of those fleeting moments at a social gathering. And so maybe just over a year later, right, Amber, we went out for a meal. Something like that. Yeah, I think it was just a few months afterwards and we got to talking. I mean, we're both design historians. So that, you know, right there, we had so much in common. And then we both discovered that we were thinking within the same space about designs for the arc of reproduction in various ways. Michelle's entry point was through the breast pump. And I was thinking about maternity fashion. And we just realized that, you know, maybe we should do something together and scale it up. And we also, I mean, I was working at a museum at that point in time. I was working at MoMA in the the architecture and design department. And Amber was working as an independent historian and writer. And nowhere, I mean, we were frustrated design historians because we could see this absolute plethora of conversations of material culture that, as you said, Bon, undergirds so many aspects of everybody's life because everybody is born. And as Amber said, we were rubbing our hands with glee because we were like, great, we have a space which is really ripe for the picking. We'll take it to a museum or a publisher. I know a museum. It's called MoMA. They have a specialization (laughs) in architecture and design. Of course, they're going to say yes to this. And of course, we got so many no's. And this was 2016, 2017, 2018. We had as a story about the breast pump and trying to get it into the museum's collection. But we had access to resources. I, I then went on to work for the Philadelphia Museum of Art. We knew many people in this field. And it took us many years of sending this proposal out to people before we finally thought and realized it's not going to be a museum institution or an art museum institution that seizes upon this. They are quite conservative institutions at the best of times. And so that's how we ended up partnering with the amazing Maternity Care Coalition in Philadelphia. We ride on their coattails because they've been doing work in maternal and infant health in the city, designing a better city for us all through that work for 40 years. And then we also uh, applied with them to the Pew for funding and ended up partnering with the Mutter Museum, a place that does take these conversations really seriously. Is it because some of these artifacts that you have aren't traditionally, quote unquote, beautiful I mean, I'm nodding because, I mean, I think this question of beauty has come up quite a bit, right? I'm curious to hear where you're going to go, Michelle, and then maybe we can piggyback. Yeah, totally. So I have a couple of thoughts. Um, When I pitched this show, when I got to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, to the director and to my senior curator there, they asked me if I understood what design and decorative arts were. They said, this is luxury objects we're talking about. And I was like... (laughs) 
that's offensive, but okay, at least you've shown your colors very, very clearly here. I can also, and we did make an open and shut case for the 1956 Einar Agnar breast pump, which is on display in the Mutter Museum, being part of that fetishization of machine art and of new technology and innovation. The first ever modern contemporary design show that happened at MoMA in 1934, put together by no less than Alfred Barr, who was the founding director of the museum, and Philip Johnson, who had an outsized impact on the field. They chose corning glass beakers, um, a self-aligning ball bearing, an airplane propeller, and lifted them up on pedestals to make them look like Brancusi sculptures, which, by the way, there's a whole gallery dedicated to Brancusi at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And so notions and values of beauty have absolutely been um, an issue. I think there's also, though, a larger issue of not wanting to put on display objects that are about squeezing labor out of people Mm -hmm. that work in a capitalist system for little or no money a lot of the time. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think that this question of what is design comes up a lot in design history school. We studied the physical world, right? Textiles, furniture, architecture, but also how the social world shapes those objects. So for us, it was a no brainer to make that leap outside of luxury objects like the Fabergé egg to things that we were practically and interacting with daily. And it opened up so much to be able to look at things like that. And something that we always go back to as well is it's not just the physical world. It's a lot of social policies are also Mm. shaped by design. Yeah. I felt like the exhibit was made for a geek like me who thinks a lot about this like intersection of beauty, art, medicine, health, design, and there are some fascinating objects in your book, in your exhibit. Oh, gosh, we don't have enough time to get into all of them, but I would love to hit on a few of them. And maybe I'll just start off by asking you a question. What is the maybe the strangest or worst or best design in the exhibit personally for you? I feel like we should Maybe talk about the pessary, which, you know, the Mudra is super strong in. Uh, their collection has tons and tons of, and Michelle, maybe you can like help me out with dates of the newer one, but the Mudra's collection has a number of historic pessaries. So that was a lot of fun to go through and discover the different materials and shapes and sizes. But the truth is, it wasn't a design that had been thought about since 1930, was it, Michelle? Wow. 1938. 1938. We, we rewind a little bit. What is a pessary? Okay. What's yeah. it used for? Oh, yes. Yeah. So pessaries can be used for a number of different things. The ones that we're looking at in the museum exhibition is specifically geared towards pelvic prolapse. So people with uteruses, 50% of them. So really staggering statistic. One in two people with a uterus at some point in their life will experience some form of pelvic prolapse. It can be connected to childbirth. It doesn't have to be. It can be connected to aging. And it is when your uterus drops and sort of comes out through the cervix into the vaginal canal. And Bon, correct me if I'm wrong, because you have the actual medical terminology for this. This is an experience that is pretty widespread widespread um, super uncomfortable yeah it affects every part of daily life 
Absolutely. Not really something that's talked about at the dinner table at Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. No, my mom had one and I didn't really think about this until we came to look at these pessaries. So in the Mutter's collection, there are tons of pessaries made out of incredibly uncomfortable material like yeah. glass. Imagine a, a Christmas ornament size um, or made out of metal contraptions that look like torture devices, which people were meant to shove into their vaginas to make sure that things didn't fall out or collapse. Fast forward to a couple of years ago and three engineering students at Cornell were invited during a class to look at the landscape of design and think about a pattern that hadn't been engaged with for some time. Mm. They looked around and saw the patent for the US pessary, which hadn't been really touched dramatically since 1938. And they decided, okay, so this is what we're going to set our sights on. And we were able to show a landscape of the different pessaries that are in the Mutter's collection. And then their Frankensteins, all of the ways in which they started to test out through design and with users how this could be better. The first thing was talk about it because you're right, it's taboo. Nobody talks mm -hmm. about this. But then allow people to have a material that didn't feel like they were going to crush a Christmas bauble in their vaginal canal and something that was a little more comfortable. And so they started to make things out of silicon. If you imagine a really wonderful kind of squid shape in a way, it's incredibly soft. It's something that you can insert and remove yourself much like a tampon. So if you want to have it out for sleep or sex or something else, you feel confident about putting it in and out of your own body. And so it's called the Rea Pessary, R-E-I-A. And it's finishing up its testing, I think, this year and going out as a prescription, something that uh, providers can offer to their patients. And this is an object that truly is beautiful, right? I mean, talk about beauty. It's so sumptuous. The lines of it are just incredible. And, you know, for this condition that's so mired in shame, doesn't get spoken about, what an elevation to yep. have an object to address prolapse. Yep. I'm a physician. So in the emergency department, we do a lot of pelvic examinations. The speculum is something mm. that has been very frustrating for me. I'm sure my patients, a lot of times they're flimsy, plastic, not shaped correctly. Sometimes they're metal and they're the same design that I've used since medical student. There's been no change. And going to the exhibit, reading your book, this thing hasn't been changed for decades, maybe like a hundred years. Then I saw this cool design uh, by Yona, a company. It's, yeah. it's a beautiful looking speculum. I want one of these in my hand. I want to use one of these. Can you talk about why you include the speculum in the exhibit and book? Yeah, absolutely. And right next to that case is something even more important in a way. It's the table manners booklet. So the design of the object itself is very important. Um, it's an object, especially in the US, mired in a lot of really difficult history. It's an object that was developed in great part by J. Marion Sims, a doctor who in the 1840s and 50s tested out his speculum. What was known as the Sims speculum has been reclaimed as the Lucy speculum. He started testing it out, initially inserting a bent spoon into the vaginal canal and then developing the tool that became the speculum, one of which is on display at the Mutter. This was done on enslaved women. We know some of oh. their names, Lucy, Betsy, and Anaka. Yeah. And so that history of the object itself is an history that is repeated, sadly, very, very often in the history of reproductive medicine and health. Often there have been experiments on folks tens, sometimes centuries, tens of years, sometimes centuries ago, that have benefited and laid the foundation for modern gynecology. So knowing the histories of the speculum is important. 
The yona is really important because they're thinking not just about the object itself, but about trauma-informed care. We look at a really fantastic midwife called Stephanie Tillman, who's online as at Feminist Midwife. They talk a lot about issues of consent, issues of care, where the pelvic exam is concerned. It's not just about having a really beautifully designed speculum, but more important is being providers being supported to provide care for folks who find it a deeply uncomfortable process for many different reasons. And so that takes us to the table manners booklet that's beside it, developed in 1982 by Planned Parenthood, and it shows a range of ways in which the pelvic exam scenario can be modified for folks with different physical disabilities. Mm. And so being able to think about how to best insert a speculum or come to that conversation of a pelvic exam through a range of different experiences. Yeah. And I mean, just on the topic of pelvic exams and bringing it back to the brilliant Stephanie Tillmans, we had conversations with her about not only the objects, but that should be used, but also maybe looking hard at ones that might want to be left out, right? She does stirrup-free examinations completely because um, she, and also I think in wait, her wait, practice- Wait, wait, wait. So during a pelvic examination, you go on a pelvic exam table and then there are literally these, often there's steel and they the creak. patient- they creak, make they, clinky medical sound, you know, like metal sounds. And they literally and look like horse stirrups that yeah, the patient puts yeah. their feet in. Yeah. They look yeah. very creepy. I mean, there's nothing pleasant or humanistic about mm-hmm. them. Right. And what Stephanie is advocating for is why use them, right? The patient can just scoot to the end of the table and doesn't need, you know, this was a design that was created with the provider in mind. It was not created Mm. with the patient in mind. So, you know, maybe she can fit in that many more patients in the day and have their cervix right in the right spot while using um, stirrups. But what makes her practice so innovative is she's not thinking about squeezing every last drop, you know, packing her day in that way and thinking through only her own lens as a provider, but also really thinking deeply about what the experience of the patient is. So not only has she completely done away with stirrups, she offers them and most people say, no, thank you, understandably, but she also offers people to insert their own speculums Mm -hmm. as well, which I think is such a simple and beautiful shift. And it has this wonderful history because it comes out a lot of the time from, and there's a great picture in the book from uh, women's self-help clinics, like being able to do a self-exam. And actually in the UK, where I'm from, over the pandemic, to ensure that people still had uh, cervical exams and pap smears when they needed to, people were sent their own kits to do this themselves at home. Wait, really? Mm, Yeah, that was in our exhibition at the Center for Architecture. We Uh, have that as part of the traveling exhibition. That would never happen in the U.S. I know. know, (laughs) That that ties really nicely to the history of the -the over-the-counter pregnancy test. You actually had an opportunity to talk to the graphic designer who invented the original design of the pregnancy test. I thought that was just amazing. This is something that millions of people have used. We use it every day in my emergency department. And when I think of the the rapid COVID test, it looks like a pregnancy test. What was that like speaking to her? It was great. It was so nice. So uh, I met Meg for the first time, probably back in 2017. I was at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. I actually invited her to come to the museum and she had this wonderful conversation in our galleries with 
two other wonderful designers, young designers who've come through the design program at UPenn who designed the first biodegradable flushable pregnancy test in Philadelphia. Leah Diagnostics. Um, I'm, their, exactly, I'm a huge fan of that. Exactly. Yeah. And so Meg and I met them for the first time in 2017 at the Morgan Library. We went for a bowl of soup because she lives around the corner in Manhattan. And she's come to see the Designing Motherhood exhibition. She came to our closing ceremony in November of last year at the Center for Architecture. So Amber and I know her very well now. It was wonderful to meet her because her story was like so many other designers, especially women designers in the space saying, I've got a really good idea, guys. And I use the word guys deliberately here and everyone being <laughs> like, yeah, great. And just moving on and then being like, no, 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 guys, I have a really great idea. And the rest of the company, the world, whatever, being like, yeah, shut up. And then being like, no, 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 here's my idea, putting it on the table. And that's what happened with Meg Crane. She was a young graphic designer. She worked at Organon, a pharmaceutical company in New Jersey. She made lots of different kinds of packaging for over-the-counter medications. And one day she went into the lab, saw these test tubes of urine, understood that they were being tested for pregnancy and said, I bet women can do that themselves. Went back to her desk, took a little Perspex container, of pens and other paper clips, dumped it out. And we created that lab bench setup in the Perspex container, but for one test tube, took it to her supervisors who dismissed her idea, but then applied for funding to their parent company so they could pursue it. Oh my pursued God. it without her knowledge. She caught wind of that, went to one of the meetings where the outside company had been told to bring in their prototype. She got there a few minutes early, put her prototype on the table next to these other ones that had like pink tassels and bows because of course you need those for a pregnancy test right bond they are medically appropriate to the scenario not at all and um <laughs> the head of the advertising agency who was overseeing this prototyping process walked in late looked down the table picked up meg's design and said well this is obviously the one that, that we're going with right and so, so history was made. They actually ended up marrying one another in the end and setting up their own design firm. He's no longer with us, but, but that's the story of how it came to market. And it came to market first in the early 70s in places like the UK and Canada, but it took an extra six or seven years for the US to have it pass FDA rules because there was significant pressure from physicians and others saying, of course, people can't do this themselves at home. Mm -hmm. It will be dangerous. People won't get tested correctly, you know. History has proven that's not the case, right? Um, yeah. This is very possible for people to do at home. And also they should be able to know this information about their own bodies. I always just can't even wrap my head around the fact that we needed a pelvic exam to confirm pregnancy. Like it just seems Crazy. so insane that, and that was not that long ago, right? Crazy. The pandemic was like that in the beginning. Eve, there's so many restrictions for me as a clinician of who gets a COVID test. Yeah. And, I, and I was thinking, why do, why does a patient need to come to the hospital? Why do they need to come to a clinic, a testing center? We should just be giving out at-home diagnostic tests from like day one. It's taken only about two years to do that. Totally. Amber can speak a lot to uh, home birth. Uh, again, we are glad that modern medicine exists. We understand the statistics in terms of some people needing different forms of care that might take place in a hospital or birthing center, other places, or insisting that certain reproductive experiences have to happen within the medical system, which is to be frank, the insurance system, which is a money-making yeah. system is a really specific one. And Amber, I hand it to you because you've got loads of thoughts about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had the 
experience along with many other people of being pregnant during this pandemic. I wasn't pregnant for 2020, but rather 2021, my baby is five months old. And it was interesting talking to my midwife. I had a home birth. I had three home births with all three of my children. And what my midwife and doula were talking about were the idea of agency and respect for what um, patients can and can't do themselves. I mean, they were saying that it's such an empowering time to be pregnant in so many ways because women are really taking their own prenatal care into their own mm-hmm. hands. And mm-hmm. actually, how beautiful is it to be so in touch with one's own blood pressure, right? Because those visits weren't as possible. And really like taking a deeper dive into one's diet and whatever it was that was coming up, right? It was such an opportunity to really reclaim a lot of that agency that we're told again and again, now that belongs in a doctor's office, which of course puts you in a psychological mindset that like, okay, this isn't, you know, my birth, this is a a birth that is belonging to, or, you know, it's the doctor or the obstetrician or the midwife who is, you know, helping me deliver my baby, right. Which is Mm. such a problematic uh, situation. And I think I want to add to that. I think the reclaiming part happens if one has resources. And so there's a spectrum of that. I think we can do that if we can afford midwives and doulas to come to our home, or if we have organizations like MCC, and that is their raison d'etre, making sure that people have access to those resources. Um, For many people who don't have access to birth advocates, doulas, other forms of support during pregnancy, or or cannot define their diets, their their resources like that in, in ways that they would like to, that is, I think, where we fall incredibly short in the U.S. on a number of different intersections. And we have designed the entire payment system to pay for an OBGYN to uh, make money delivering a baby in a hospital as opposed to a doula or midwife getting paid the same amount of money to deliver a baby at home. And even I'm thinking even my own training, childbirth has been so medicalized. And I look at you know, I've only seen childbirths in the hospital. I've seen a lot of cesarean deliveries and childbirth at home seems abnormal to me when it should not be that way. Right. I've been, I'm trained in this system that has medicalized so many different aspects of health and especially motherhood. Yeah. I feel so fortunate in that my mother believed in choice in childbirth and worked very hard as an ACLU attorney to help expand access to midwifery. And it's still obviously, you know, an ongoing debate, but that was my normal growing up as a child. And I feel so grateful for that to have been born at home myself and witnessed my brother's birth and just having that be a normal, safe, kind of even boring way of doing things, right? And access to midwifery is difficult because of these illegal impayer restrictions. And of course that, as Michelle was saying, disproportionately affects low income and rural communities as well. I was going to just say, you saw at the Mutter Museum then the All My Babies film. And that really speaks Uh to this moment in time. All My Babies, a midwife's own story was created, uh, filmed in 1952, 1953 by George Stoney. He follows the story of an American midwife in the South, uh, Mary Frances Cawley. 
And he was ostensibly meant, he was commissioned by the Georgia Department of Health to create kind of a didactic training video. It was the moment in time where hospitalization and medicalization of birth became much more the standard in the US. It was the decade in which the majority of births shifted from the home to the hospital. In 1900, the statistic is that 99% of births happen in the home. Today, it's 99% of them happen in the hospital. The 50s was that tipping point in many ways. And so what he's showing is exactly what you say. Birth kind of happens in this very mundane way. It's both this sacred experience because it is midwived quite literally with somebody like Mary Frances Corey, but it is also something that happens every day and did happen every day in people's homes and was safe, was hygienic for the majority of low-risk everyday pregnancies. And so I think that it is interesting to watch that as a historical document. You can do it for free on the Library of Congress because it really speaks to not only this sacred expertise that was held Mm. by women, usually by women of color in our country, but also the moment in time that a medical institution, which at the time was mostly white dominant male OBGYNs, in that incursion in that particular practice as part of making money, of standardizing, of creating the system as we know it today. And again, I want to Say, yeah, we're pro-medical. We're pro-medical. Yeah. We're, like, it's not, this is not a moment in time where we're like, burn the hospital down. Far from it. Like, yeah, I've not at saved all. members of our family on many occasions. But knowing this history is incredibly important because it exposes the ways in which, just like beauty is constructed, so too is our medical system. I had no idea that shift and happened so recently in the 1950s with yeah. 99% yeah. of deliveries in the home versus hospitals after that. And cesarean deliveries have become so commonplace in the US that when I ask my patients, you know, if they come with abdominal pain, I go, well, have you had any surgeries? And often women will say, no, like no surgeries. Then I would say, wait, didn't you have a C-section? She's like, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's become yeah. so commonplace that they don't even see- it's- a cesarean delivery as a major surgery. Yeah. And both my kids were born by a cesarean delivery. Mm-hmm. It is a freaking major surgery. Yep. And yeah. but that's how normalized we have medicalized childbirth has become so normalized that right. we don't even see C-section as a major surgery. Yep. It's one in three births that are oh cesarean gosh. in this country. And that's a 500% increase in cesareans in the last generation, which yep. is just astounding. And the conversation becomes about, it becomes a cultural conversation. A lot of the time people feeling ashamed for the type of birth that they have, ashamed for the access of resources they do or do not have, rather than equipping people with these histories and these knowledge bases and offering a system that privileges and allows people to make healthy choices, healthy informed choices. We talk about informed consent, but that is so rarely the case actually in reproductive health. Um, People are not informed why, or actually why not a lot of the time they should not consent to electronic fetal monitoring right the way throughout their labor, for example. A lot of the clinical literature does not point to it being the best thing to do in pretty regular low-risk pregnancies. It offers a literal paper trail for very litigious hospitals and insurance organizations. It can save lives. It can be fantastically important in some cases. But I think that as with so many interventions, large or small in the reproductive arc, it is not often that people experiencing them are informed as to what they are, let alone what their outcomes might be. Yeah. I was curious about what you see as some low-hanging fruit in this space for a design overhall. Mm. I mean, <laughs> we have a laundry list. <laughs> There's so much. <laughs> yeah. 
We have a laundry list. Right. I mean, There's some yeah. budding entrepreneurs and health professionals, designers who work in this space. So inspire these listeners of what what are some you know top five things that can be designed so easily that need an overhaul or maybe some things long-term that you would love to see design in your lifetime or redesign in your lifetime? One of the most low-hanging fruits, I think, is less about things and more about mindsets. So we developed a designing motherhood curriculum and we have taught it now for the last two years or so at UPenn in their design track. And our students have been absolutely amazing. So too, we should give a shout out to Orkan Talhan, who's the professor at the design school that we've worked with really closely. And we've then put that out open source on our website for others to learn from what we did and to continue to keep it as conversations. Because I think inspiring existing designers and new generations is about having these conversations in the first place, right? Describing the system and again, making people intimately familiar with the history. We are both historians. History is a design tool, is a weapon in many cases. You need to know history in order to be able to design. You need to understand context and context is history. So I think a low-hanging fruit is equipping people with the knowledge which they are inheriting, good, bad, and ugly, in order to then inspire them. This is a place where design um, experimentation should happen. It's where design investment, innovation should happen. So often it's very hard to get people to invest in reproductive health startups, that kind of thing that focus on women or reproductive Mm -hmm. issues. So I think it's a good old-fashioned consciousness raising is the lowest hanging fruit. I want that curriculum to be taught in medical schools. Forget design schools. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> invite us, Vaughn. Invite yeah. us. What, what's your website things. that people can find the curriculum on? Designingmotherhood.org. And so it's on our website. And we also have a very healthy Instagram at Designing Motherhood on our handle on uh, Instagram. And we post a lot there in terms of different resources. Yeah. Okay. So another idea. And, you know, this is kind of, conceptual in a way, but just to bring it back to all my babies and the real difference in care that midwifery models specifically spoke to was culturally appropriate care, right? And this is why organizations like Maternity Care Coalition are so powerful. They provide doulas, lactation consultants, all kinds of specialists to people, giving them access to those specialties that they might not be able to otherwise access. And the doulas are, I mean, we say it all the time. They're magicians, they're magic makers. They make all of the difference in the room. Yep. What is a doula different from a midwife? Okay. I'm going to actually look in our definition in our book here. So... And while you're looking that up, Amber, I can say MCC not only provides services, they actually train people in Philadelphia to become doulas and lactation consultants and other forms of birth advocates. So they are not only uh, sending people out to communities, but investing in communities by training folks within them who then create professional lives out of these tracks and continue to serve the communities in which they are being trained and workforce development part as much as a service provision part. Mm. And a birth doula, because we hear a lot about doulas these days. So there are postpartum doulas and birth doulas and full spectrum doulas, death doulas, but a birth doula is a trained professional support person who's there to help educate a pregnant person and provide emotional and physical support during birth. So, you know, 
I had an amazing doula, I'd be happy to talk to you about what kinds of things that she brought to me. Her name was Sylvie and she was present for two out of three of my births. And I want to say that midwives, which are different, right? They take more care of the body and doulas, I think are kind of there as like more of an emotional support or kind of a guide in a way. It's a role that like a sister might have played or, you know, somebody's mother or aunt or a trusted companion sort of thing. But I wanted to share too that both my doula and my midwife in so many of my appointments, and I mean, I think this is really a key difference between a home birth setting and some other settings is we had tea. We just bonded, you know, we just (laughs) chat. And from what I gather, that's not really the case with a lot of people who are going a different route, right? And it is like, in many ways, it's a privilege, but my goodness, that's culturally appropriate care. That's getting to know one another. That's getting to, you know, define goals, talk about fears or, you know, hopes, get to know one's family and who's going to be in the room during birth. And it's really a wonderful way to get comfortable and just kind of talk through all of the myriad things that come up during one's pregnancy and birth, which puts the birthing person in the driver's seat in so many ways, right? That culturally appropriate care, talk about agency and, you know, respecting one's patient. I love how you define motherhood as being myriad. And there might be some hesitation for men like me to go to your exhibit or to read your book because motherhood is often seen as only a female issue. What would you say to dudes like me? Well, you were born, right, Bon? Yeah. Yeah. I I had a mom. I was born on this planet. Exactly. So everybody is connected to this material culture in some way, because at least one piece of it that we talk about, if not many of them have touched you in some way, probably even in utero before you came into this world. So it's design that absolutely manifests in everybody's lives. We also talk about motherhood being married. I mean, we have a chapter in the book. We interviewed Thomas Beatty, who is a man who gave birth, is an experience that happens for many people in different ways. Sometimes it's their own physical experience of it. Sometimes mothering or different forms of care work, often they occur beyond biology, beyond a gender binary in many different ways. And so I think we want to be very expansive because we want to reflect the expansiveness of mothering, motherhood, and and what it means to go through reproductive arcs and journeys. I think it's something I'd be hard pressed to look for someone that hasn't had some contact with what we talk about in the book at some stage in their lives and probably much more than they think. Mm. It is about building empathy. We go and learn more about the world, not just to affirm our own knowledge or affirm our own ego or centrality in it, But the best kinds of artworks, the best kind of design helps us be in relationship with others, other ideas, other things, other people, other geographies, other cultures, not in a voyeuristic way or kind of shopping way, but in a way to, as you say, Amber, build empathy to really understand always in a partial sense, because one can never understand fully outside of oneself, however self-reflective one is. So yeah, that's why people should care about this, this subject matter. Right. And I mean, building medical spaces, wherever they are, if they're home, hospital, birthing center, postpartum space. I mean, we all deserve to feel safe, supported and heard. And those that can only help one's health outcomes. Right. So, yeah. 
What is a message that you want our audience to hear? We want to listen to them, actually. That's the most fun part of designing motherhood. Like it's been years of listening to people talk about their birth stories, their stories of loss, the stories of why they got involved in this design space, of their familial stories of what matters to them in terms of the arc of human reproduction, the choices they can make, the choices they can't make, what has knowledge that's been passed down ancestrally. The listening part is so much more interesting. And so I guess the message then is like, tell your story to anyone. It can be tell it to your like family, make sure it's something you discuss at the dinner table. It can be tell your neighbor, talk about it in your communities, feel like this is subject matter that deserves airing because so often we are told be quiet this is taboo it's gross it's like female issues whatever it's so often marginalized and written off Mm. and that is such bullshit and so I think we really want people to feel empowered to speak up and so many have we're riding on the coattails and shoulders of many folks who've done that before us and we either welcome them in as contributors to the book or the exhibition or they're liberally cited within the project so we're not doing anything radical by any means but it is kind of mind-blowing I think there's the the protest poster for this right so many people put in x year I'll use 2022 and say I can't believe I still have to talk about this shit Mm. Um, because it is something that even while we are being historically and today encouraged to to speak up we're so often told as well don't talk about it or or put it in a space that isn't in the mainstream so yeah listening I think yeah yeah and I would add just to when it comes to design I mean we've seen over and over again how many examples illustrate that simple design right a less is more attitude can really yield the profound and positive outcomes that we're all looking for There are so many examples that I can cite. You know, one of our favorites is the clear cesarean curtain. Bon, I'm not sure you saw the exhibition at Center for Architecture and Design, but we sadly missed that. I'm so excited about this design that you're talking about, having been a father in a cesarean delivery several times and seeing it a lot as a medical student. So in you and your partner's birth, did you get the opportunity to, what was the curtain like? Can you It was it? An, an opaque curtain, you know, it was like a, okay. one of those blue surgical kind of linens. And I had to like step above it and, you know, literally almost put my head in the surgical field to see what was going on. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if I was short, I would not be able to see anything or, you know, like I had like tippy yeah. toe go, okay, what's right. going on here? Well, a lot of the people who undergo cesarean birth describe feeling so cut off from their births as a result of those curtains, right? Just kind of being in between their experience of what they're seeing and hearing and what's happening in their body, right? Even the term C-section implies separation. And that unfortunately can impact postpartum depression, breastfeeding rates, you know, a lot of the like typical cesarean um, protocols delay parental contact, which can, you know, impact all kinds of things, including just early bonding and breastfeeding. But there are a few new versions and even just the concept of dropping the curtain entirely, which we don't see a lot in this country, but that does happen. But we included in our exhibition a version developed by three nurses in Virginia, and it has a portal that allows the baby to be handed through and placed directly on the mother's chest. And I mean, 
it's a huge innovation that patients are so, so happy about, and they report just feeling so much more connected Mm. to their own experiences, their own children right away. What's just happened because of course, birth is a huge event. So to just be a player in the unfolding of it is enormous. And it's just, it's that simple fact of watching babies birth allows them to better experience it. I mean, it's so simple. It's so, so simple, but such a huge impact. Or having the choice. Cause if I, as a deeply right. squeamish person, true, like true. keep it up. I don't want to see anything, but just being able to have the yeah. choice, right. Being able to Absolutely. say, how do you want this to go? We talked to yeah. a friend of ours when you were writing that beautiful chapter yeah. on it, Amber, and just having the ability to say the first time she had a cesarean birth, it was hard. She didn't know what to expect that had never really been talked about actually during all of her visits. And then suddenly she was in the emergency stages of needing to have a cesarean happen really quickly. And she felt awful. The second time around, she was like, okay, this is how it's going to go. I don't want your music on in the OR. I want to be able to choose the ambiance that we're going to have. Everyone's going to be speaking quite slowly and carefully. There needs to be some bright lights, but there doesn't need to be like crazy activity. We're going to do it in a way that I feel some control of this. And even being able to articulate that and have that conversation with her provider, it wasn't that it was a materially different operation that she underwent. Of course it wasn't. It's another cesarean birth. But that conversation meant the world to her and was very different in terms of her postpartum recovery mentally and emotionally as much as physically. There's such a lack of agency in in healthcare. And when we design services or products to give the patient a sense of control, I think would be a quantum leap in healthcare, in the design of healthcare. Yeah, that's culturally appropriate care, right? That's designing with empathy and, you know, getting out of the provider mindset solely because we still need providers. Of course, we want to consider them, but we also want to consider the recipient of so much of that care. I'm reading a great book right now. It's called Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again, Women and Desire in the Age of Consent by Catherine Angel. And it's fantastic. It's really great. It's about consent and consent culture right now and Mm -hmm. desire. And she has a really nuanced take on it. She talks about the fact that consent culture is all well and good, but unless you actually have much more nuanced understandings of the way specifically female desire works in contexts of sexual contact, which is very different than the models that we are given through the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s in terms of research, then you actually don't know what you're consenting to. And actually desire doesn't happen in a linear way, nor to do people's reproductive experiences or any other health experiences. And so to be able to have much more nuanced conversations, I think then allows us to understand the uniqueness of most situations, even while the approaches may be somewhat standardized in terms of somebody needing a cesarean, for example, or some kind of help intervention, pharmaceutical, something like that. It really reminds me a lot of the ways in which having those conversations is so important because so often women, I will say in particular, don't feel like they have control over consenting what happens to them a lot of the time. And that can happen in a doctor's office. It can happen in a romantic or sexual encounter. It can happen in, in work workplaces yeah. a lot of the time. And so it's a, lot, a part of that larger culture of understanding that conversation is key to actually having informed consent, which is part of the Hippocratic Oath, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's key to ethics within these scenarios. Well, I've been looking forward to this conversation 
for months and it did not disappoint. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Listeners by Designing Motherhood, I think it should be required reading for every medical student. And this is coming from me. I'm an educator in the medical school. I've learned so much. And thank you for just an inspiring conversation. Thank, thank you. you. Well, We're such thanks. big fans of your work as well. Totally. We love what you do and it's really important. So thanks for having us as part of the conversation. You can find Michelle and Amber on Instagram. Michelle can be found at M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-M-I-L-L-A-R-F-I-S-H-E-R. Amber can be found at A-M-B-E-R-W-I-N-I-C-K. And also follow the Designing Motherhood account. It's so awesome. It's been a couple of weeks since the second edition of my book, Health Design Thinking, co-authored with Ellen Lupton, is out. It's a cool book with so many creative inspirations from the pandemic. I think you'll enjoy it. Reach out to me on social media, both on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, I can be found at B-O-N-K-U. On Instagram, at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.